Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on the 12th of April 2009 at about 12.30 London time. As always, uh, if you want to find out more about this podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast and actually i feel bad with today's episode that we don't have a facebook page but uh, you never <laughs> know we might get one soon uh also thanks as always to our sponsors ib taurus if you want to get 35 percent off any of the bloomsbury books in middle east and politics be sure to go on bloomsbury.com and use the offer code talking ibt19 when you go to check out also, if you or anyone you know wants to do a master's in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, be sure to check out our master's here at the at Royal Holloway University of London. We'll be offering it from September 2019 at our central London campus on Bedford Square. Anyway, an, enough of those plugs for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm delighted to have on today's pod Aaron Saltman. Aaron is the policy manager for Europe, Middle East, and Africa on counterterrorism and countering violent extremism here at Facebook. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. I can't believe you just outed yourself as not having a Facebook page to start this off. I know, I know. I might edit that out <laughs> when, we, when it goes out, and we might have a Facebook page by the time it goes. So, Aaron, thanks so much for for being on. Today today's podcast. As you can see in the description on uh, today's episode, we'll be concentrating on Facebook's counterterrorism and counter and violent extremism. But before we get into that, how did you get involved in, in this area, this working in counterterrorism and CVE in for Facebook? Well, I guess it's pretty clear to say that these jobs did not exist within social media companies even three, four or five years ago. So Throughout my career of looking at processes of radicalization towards violence, everything from looking at post-nationalist neo-Nazi networks all the way to Islamist extremists and other forms of violent extremist networks, it was never in my purview to think the end goal is working for a tech company. Um, but increasingly, obviously, within our research, you turn to the tech companies. So you go back to 2014 when you have this huge rise of this so-called Islamic State, Daesh, coming to the scene and it's all over Twitter, it's all over Facebook, it's on YouTube, it's on the big major platforms. You start learning about smaller platforms. So to even research this space, you have to look into the online space. A lot of misconceptions or perceptions about auto-radicalization, that you watch enough videos and that in and of itself turns you into a violent extremist. I know that probably you and I have watched more videos than most. We're still not quite, we're probably extremists at this point, but not the violent ones. Um, and so I think it was very interesting to increasingly in my research write about technology and social media and how the interplay between online and offline and violent extremism took place and then eventually have Facebook come to me and say, we're developing a team, um, come on board. That's, it's also hard for an academic because you, know, you want to be really objective. And so you think, well, if I'm going to say yes to a big social media company, am I selling out? Am I no longer gonna have my own voice? I can't just be a talking head or write an academic publication as and when I want as much. And so that decision, I talked with Monica Bickert. She's a vice president of the policy team that I work with. She's a badass. I don't know if I can say badass on the, you I can, can say, say whatever you want. She's a badass. I mean, she comes from a human rights law background. She was doing you know, drug trafficking in Chicago and coming down on child exploitation networks in Southeast Asia in her background before she came to Facebook. And I 
was posing all this umming and awing, saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I really like being independent. I love the NGO that I work for. I was at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue at the time. And she just said, what's your goal with your work? And I said, well, impact. I want to see actual impact from the research that I do. I want to make a positive impact. And she said, we have over 2 billion users on Facebook. How much more big data and impact do you want? And that really shut me up. And I said yes to the job. And so what does your job actually entail? What does this role involve? Um, you're obviously concentrating regionally on Europe, Middle East and Africa, but you're a policy manager. So how does this policy, uh, how does the policy get formed? And so yeah, at, a, at its baseline, my team looks at how are we defining this space? So it's counterterrorism and dangerous organizations. So that's not just official terrorist organizations or individuals. It includes hate-based organizations. So you get organizations that definitely shouldn't be on Facebook but might not have direct violence. Mm -hmm. So groups like the KKK, they claim nonviolence, but we know that there's incitement to violence. We know there's coordinated hate-based ideology at the core of the group. And so we define that around how do we expand to make sure hate-based organizations aren't allowed. It includes criminal networks, mass shooters, and we're trying to tease out things like, well, where is there a space or not a space for things like non-state armed groups? They're not quite terroristy, they're not quite criminally, maybe not quite hate-based, but where should there or shouldn't there be space for violent groups, perhaps within a conflict zone, for example? Um, so we're defining the lines, but then we're also working with the operations teams on, it's one thing to say there's a policy. How do you then at scale around the world act on that policy? Um, and then we work with engineers. So where can tooling and machine learning technology help us get to the scale and speed of known violating content or known violating profiles? So say within Facebook as a whole, about how many people would be working on a CT and CVE level in relation to policy, in relation to, to takedowns, et cetera? What kind of breadth of a team do you have? Here? We have over 200 people. I think it must be nearing in on 300 now, but over 200 people that work majority or full-time on counterterrorism and dangerous organizations. Mm -hmm. And that includes people from the policy team like myself, but also engineers and operational teams that have to have different language specialists and different subject matter expertise. Um, on the policy team specifically, there's about five of us. I have my bosses in California, so it's, there's a lot of autonomy when your boss is eight hours away from you yeah. in a time difference zone. And my boss is Brian Fishman. He wrote the great book, ISIS, The Master Plan. Uh, if you haven't read it, go on out. He'll appreciate the plug. But it, that's great because it's historical. It looks specifically. He comes from a counterterrorism and counterinsurgency background. Whereas uh, when he hired me, I'm based in London. I cover Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And really, I come from a slightly different background. I'm looking at processes of radicalization. So his, his perspective is know the bad guy, get the bad guy. And my background academically is understand the bad guy. How did the bad guy get there? Are they such a bad guy? Can we bring them and disengage them from that space? Uh, and then I have an equal counterpart in Singapore, for example, um, Gulnaz. And she has, as well, an academic background on terrorist networks in Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific, because that looks a little different. That includes Buddhist extremist groups and some of these other types of violent organizations. And then I have a great partner here in London, Dina, who you know, is Egyptian Kuwaiti and comes from a background working with the FCO and Amnesty International and, and across the Middle East so that we have regional perspective. So actually, while, while you say it's 200 people, for a 
platform that has 2 billion users, as you said earlier, that's quite a tight team. So is there, uh, is there very much a reliance on machine learning on the, when, you, when you're looking at the role about uh, uh, the day-to-day -day activity, whether it's takedowns or whatever uh, you're involved with or identifying um, these, these posts? Absolutely. We, we have to rely on the combination of what's flagged to us. Mm -hmm. So what do externals flag to us? Yeah. And that could be members of the Facebook community. A user can flag any post or comment or content. Some governments have international uh, kind of referral units, so IRUs, and they will flag content to us. That's a minority of what gets taken down at scale because, as you mentioned, our tooling, our machine learning tooling, can really get to the scale more. We have 30,000 people plus on our safety and operations teams, broadly speaking. So those are the operations teams in 20-plus locations around the world, primarily five different global offices on different time zones, that are the ones reviewing content as it comes in. Something might not be labeled as terrorism. So when you flag something on Facebook, it actually asks you a little more about it. Is this pornography? Is this violent? Is it hate-based? And it'll triage to the right team. So there's a specialist team just looking at terrorism. But then these general operations teams might come across something, and they'll triage it to the specialist team, too. But the machine learning and tooling, well, that gets to the scale. So if we have known pieces of terrorist propaganda, we will bank that. We'll put it in a photo and video matching bank. Mm -hmm. And basically, those images and videos get hashed. It's like creating a digital fingerprint. And then any previously shared versions of that and forward-facing, so any uploads that come up around that are immediately caught. And there's two actions that can happen. We shouldn't see anything as a silver bullet. Terrorist content is a little different than other abuse types. So, for example, child exploitation imagery, illegal to share under any circumstances, even a journalist. It's considered further exploitation of the child. Terrorist content gets shared by a lot of weird people for a lot of weird reasons, some very legitimate. We see bits of it being shared by journalists or activists or academics. So if there's context, a machine can take down content that's just raw shared if you're raw sharing terrorist content with no context. But if there's context to be analyzed, the machine will actually triage that to the human review team so that we can assess, is that being celebrated, glorified, or is that actually being condemned? Is that counter speech? Is that a counter narrative? Is that a journalist? And, and we need to know the difference. So going back to the heart of what well, when we're talking about academia, the heart of what all academic research is, but also when we're looking at this sort of space, what would the operational definition of what terrorist or violent extremist content be? Obviously, you talked about just the very presence of a video or of an image or something doesn't necessarily mean that's there. That that's there. Um, there, there could be this counter-speech, counter-narrative as well. So what would be the working operational definition, or do you have one within Facebook in regards to that? You know, because we're talking to an academic network in this podcast, there's no one agreed upon definition. So this is always sticking your hand in the hornet's nest. But Facebook did about a year ago openly present its definition of what a terrorist organization and a terrorist member, as well as a hate-based organization is. Mm. That is a no-win situation because everyone will try to pick it apart immediately. But we did get a lot of third-party feedback from academics, from the UN, from other organizations about that definition before I went live. And so our definition looks at a couple different factors. I don't have the exact wording in front no, of me, but basically no. we're looking at um, premeditated acts of violence. So we're looking at a group that's coordinating and strategically premeditating violence that is based on attacking 
either civilians, property, or international organizations for the explicit purpose that there's an ideological, political, or religious purpose. So there's not, it's important for us that we're looking at the behaviors. We're looking at violence. So violence is central to the coordinated plan of a group, that it's premeditated. That's so that it's not the difference between a hate crime and a terrorist attack. And a hate crime would also come down off Facebook, but if it's a terrorist attack, there's other tooling and other specialists that we might want to put on top of that. Um, and then really the fact that it's ideologically, religiously, or politically motivated. It's not just a random act. It's not, um, although still horrific, a mass shooting that might be without cause. You know, the Las Vegas shooter, we're still, I'm, I still don't know what that motivation was. I didn't see a clear research paper that was able to tease that apart. So we're looking at that. That definition could evolve. We've gotten a lot of subsequent feedback about it. But I think it's important that we have to look at behaviors and indicators. It's sometimes very hard to know if it's premeditated, sometimes very hard to know the group behind it, so what the motivation was. And we will usually mark something as a violating event, so it would still be removed and glorification of it would come down. But once it goes into terrorist mode, then we can do other things like see what group it's attached to. And obviously with white supremacy terrorism, it's it's increasingly hard because usually you'll have a terrorist attacker. We need to be able to identify the individual as a terrorist, but oftentimes they're not attached to an official terrorist organization. It's a decentralized network. Within this, within all of this work that's been done here, how, how are you interacting? How are Facebook interacting with the other social media platforms as well? So we've got, um, we've got GIFCT, for example. Would you be able to tell our listeners about that? But within that, what way you talked about the hashes as well what way do you interact with those other platforms as well yeah. it's a great question because you know i i dare you to find a person that is at all online savvy that has only one app on their phone <laughs> and we're always so surprised that bad actors would use a myriad of platforms and yet we all use a myriad of platforms in our daily lives and bad actors are the same, and so you're gonna use one thing to be more secretive in your conversation, you're gonna use one thing to reach the most people, one thing to plan an event, you might use an app to buy material, you might use a transportation app to plan something, so everything is increasingly cross-platform, everything we do is online. The big four companies, so Facebook, YouTube, Microsoft, Twitter, we've been talking about terrorism and other violating real-world harm subjects for a long time, and it was mostly ad hoc in the last five years, and really, I think the decision was made that that's not good enough. So if we're just having our own ad hoc conversations in the aftermath of an attack, there's no infrastructure around it. It's really hard for other sectors to know how to engage with us, uh, whether that's a policymaker or whether that's an academic or you know, a humanitarian rights organization for that matter. And so we created the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, GIFCT, because everyone needs another acronym in their life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is to put a structure around cross-platform counterterrorism efforts. So how can we, as the tech industry, create friction and prevent terrorist exploitation? And that should not be specific to just social media. Um, so we have three pillars of work that we do with GIFCT. One is questioning where we can share technology, so like photo and video matching. Mm -hmm. One is to question how can we get better academic feedback. So we created a, a academic network attached to us. And then the third is how can we share knowledge better? Both us sharing with other sectors what we're doing, but other sectors giving us feedback, declassified threat assessments, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and kind of telling us more about the ground truth. Mm -hmm. And how about the support for the, 
like you mentioned the 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 big five companies there but how about the support for the the smaller uh, online networks the smaller social media platforms yeah when you look at an analysis of how just something like terrorist propaganda mm-hmm. which means a lot of different things already just saying that there's usually a couple big platforms and a very long tail. So lots of different platforms get used. And terrorist networks in Southeast Asia are using some of the different platforms than Western networks or US networks. So what we did is we partnered with Tech Against Terrorism. They're a great NGO, I hope they never leave us, but they are a UN counterterrorism executive director at Mandated Initiative. That's a mouthful, but it's important that yeah. we, we are also in compliance with UN. And we work with them so that what we didn't want is a structure that felt like tech companies policing each other. We are not there to scold each other. We're there to provide learning and tooling to help other companies as well as help ourselves and all get to a better space. So we work with Tech Against Terrorism to do workshops all around the world, including e-learning sessions where people can dial in on a subject. And when we go to a country or region, we will invite to the table lots of different types of tech companies. That includes blockchain technologies, transportation apps, sales apps, um, and we'll talk about baseline and we'll invite policymakers from that region to give their assessment of where the state of play is and also NGOs to talk about what they're already doing. Maybe that's about counter speech. Maybe that's about making sure we're not countering terrorism at the cost of human rights, which mm-hmm. is also very important. So we've done about 10 of those workshops on four continents. Okay. My carbon footprint is atrocious. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that will continue so that we can open the door to other tech companies. So what do you, when, when we're looking at the terrorist groups, and we talked about like your operational definition, but when you're looking at what organizations, say we're looking at terrorist organizations, how do you designate which ter- which organizations are terrorist organizations and what challenges does that face? Well, we we are legally obliged by things like the US designation list mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, despite most of my efforts being far away from the US as a longtime immigrant to Europe, uh, we are obliged by the US designation list and that poses its own challenges, but legally we're obliged by that. On top of that, we have to move much faster than designation processes. Yep. So when a group like Al-Muhajirun changes a name for the millionth time and creates a different affiliate, we're looking for indications in more formal terrorist networks like affiliation, the usage of the same symbol and slogan, the same leadership sometimes moves to a different group and changes the name. Um, We're looking at self-declaration. And then for new groups, we're looking at method and ideology. We're looking at the behavioral signals that we can point to to say, based on our definition, this is terrorism. Um, that's really hard sometimes when you get to these non-state paramilitary groups. So you get to some parts of the world and there's kind of ethnic tribal violence-based groups and that doesn't quite fit a terrorist definition. So maybe there's a little growth that needs to take place there just on our policy lines. How do we feel about that? Does it look different? But generally speaking, it's, it's based on the behaviors and the indicators. So we have groups that are white supremacy terrorist groups, Buddhist extremist terrorist groups, Islamist extremist terrorist groups. I think there's a couple environmentalist groups on that list because of the tactics that they use strategically. And so that's what we're looking at. So when you're looking at this and you've got that, uh, that tied to the U.S. Uh, designation, when you're looking at this and you go to somewhere like, you, you, you look at something like Hezbollah, for example. Ugh, yeah. What, like, you, could, you could be giving support, showing support for Hezbollah on social media, on, on Facebook, but you're support, you might be supporting them for political purposes, with the legitimate political uh, votes that, that are getting 
and but yet they're on this de- the designated list what how do you deal with that how do it's such it's such a good question because it's so difficult and it has to be so nuanced with how we apply the policy. So unfortunately, when you look at the U.S. designation list, it does not distinguish between political and military ring, yeah. rings of group like Hamas and Hezbollah. So we are not allowed to make some gross distinguishing factor between the military wing and the political wing. What is important to know is that when we're looking at reactive versus proactive efforts, our proactive efforts, things like using the machine learning technology, our tooling, is really focused on the worst of the worst and the violent aspects of terrorism. So our photo and video matching, it's for really openly centralized propaganda, it's around incitement, bomb making materials, gore, you know, the beheading videos, things like that. And so we're not proactively looking for a lot of that more political speech, really what we would consider normative speech. But when it's flagged to us, we actually have to take action. So if something is considered glorification or praise and support of a designated terrorist organization, we do actually have to take action on that. But we rely a lot on our Middle East and North Africa policy and programs team. So they're in region, they're based out of Dubai, they all come from region. Mm. And so we will go and engage directly with NGOs and CSOs to make sure we can explain our policies a little better so that we talk about, you know, having them understand our community standards and making sure we're not trying to apply our policies in a way that over-censors normative speech. And we've we've got a new challenge here looking at this in, like, we're in middle of April now and it's... Just a few days ago, uh, we see the designation of a legit uh, of a, a military wing of the Iranian uh, of the Iranian state being a de- designated group on this uh, on the list. Now, I know Facebook doesn't have a presence in Iran, but Instagram does. Yeah. Um, so, what challenges are faced now within that when in the state uh, military wing now being on that designated group for for your partners and Instagram. Yeah, you know, our our definition, the first line of our yeah. own definition is that it's a non-state yeah. entity, that it's a non-governmental organization of sorts. Yeah. And here you have Iranian Guard Corps, so the IRGC is very much a official wing of the government. It is the military wing. It's like if we were to say the US Navy is now designated. And you're right. So Facebook under the umbrella, we have Instagram and WhatsApp as well. And so it means that we are now having to consider with our different teams, what does that mean? How do we apply that law in a way that doesn't over-censor, but that complies with U.S. law for their own designation? So I can tell you that we are strategizing that right now mm-hmm. since that designation goes live next week. Mm-hmm. And that in as part of that, I'm not only in conversations with lots of lawyers. Mm-hmm. I think at Facebook, every conversation has a couple extra lawyers on the call, but also with our... Middle East and North Africa public policy team, also with our team that just looks at sanctions. So mm-hmm. Iran has been a long time sanctioned entity. And so as such, the IRGC has already been on our sanctions lists. Yeah. So some of their presence has already come down around okay. the IRGC just because of sanctions law. But because of this being more robust on the FTO list, mm-hmm. we are going to have to go through and just maybe do an initial sweep and say, well, what's it look like right now? Yeah. H- how do we make sure we're complying? Yeah. So. W- one of the reason, regions that you focus on, we've mentioned mentioned it already, is the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, what would the trust of Facebook be like within the Middle East in relation to utilizing uh, this U.S. these this U.S. designation? Um, if you take, for example, 
uh, designation in relation to uh, Palestinian or Israeli groups and how because an organization like Facebook does need the trust when you're dealing with the type of issues that you're dealing with within your sector so what does that look like on the ground and what challenges are faced within that trust is a really I guess that's a, a very subjective concept yeah. but obviously I think it's safe to say that we're we're at negative trust in a lot of parts of the region there's a lot of criticism um, there's a lot of some of it very justly so you know so sometimes the over censorship of Hezbollah as you mentioned when it's a legitimate government in Lebanon that's really hard to go and engage and our, our public policy team that engages in the region all the time I don't envy their position for that but oftentimes I will also come along with them and try to really dive in with NGOs and activists with different policymakers to make sure it's very clear why and how our policy is made and what that looks like. It takes a lot of human engagement. So even though we're a tech platform, yeah. in order to build trust, you cannot just remain distant. And so a lot of our growth around human capacities has been mostly outside of the US. A lot of it is to make sure our regional offices have the capacities to engage in a meaningful way. <laughs> and that includes allowing people to ask really hard questions. I mean, I. I was, well, lucky or unlucky enough to join our public policy team in Pakistan a few weeks ago in Islamabad and go speak at a university there about violent extremism, hate speech, hate-based organizations, and terrorism. It happened to be during the crisis, so I got landlocked there a couple extra days. Okay. Uh, it's a beautiful city. I mm. recommend. I, I bought a rug. <laughs> I had a couple Very extra good. days to spare. Um, but it was incredible to engage, not only to debunk some of the conspiracy theories mm. about Facebook, but also get some amazing feedback from the NGOs on the ground of how they were seeing hate-based violence manifest. So we might have a global policy for something like terrorism or violence or hate speech, but how that's applied has to have local nuance. We don't always know what a local slur term is yeah. or what dehumanizing speech manifests as in a given country. And we actually have to stay on top of that and get feedback to make sure you know, if I out you as an atheist mm -hmm. in the streets of London, probably nothing's going to happen yeah. to you except people looking at me funny. If someone outs you on Facebook as an atheist in Pakistan, you could get killed. Yeah. And so we have to really look at real world harm and mm -hmm. propensities to offline violence mm -hmm. and make sure that we're taking the right steps. So with that, that in mind, that combination between the, the real world harm and, and, and the online platform, and you said at the beginning that part of your role and part of what you wanted to achieve is to try and understand why people are becoming involved. So how do you see the interaction between uh, online presence and offline presence and radicalization? Like, do you, uh, how, do you, how do you get that understanding? Where, what, what's your viewpoint on that interaction there? Yeah, the process of radicalization, when you look at it, most people on the spectrum will never be violent. Mm -hmm. So most people might at one point have quite extreme ideas. They might even glorify at one point violence being carried out. Um, it doesn't mean that they are the ones that are going to carry out violence themselves. Mm -hmm. In fact, very, very few people. So if you're trying to look at a causality between those that consume violent content or even terrorist content versus those that are going to carry out mm -hmm. an attack you're going to get mostly false positives. Mm -hmm. um, I know that law enforcement asks us all the time of, you know, something like, why don't you hand over every profile of anyone that posted terrorist content? And you mm -hmm. think the false positives are rife. Mm -hmm. And people share it for a lot of different reasons. But when you look at that radicalization, we have to question as Facebook what our role actually is. Okay. So if someone violates enough times, that profile might come down. 
but we also have a law enforcement investigations team Mm -hmm. that might then say, well, there were indicators of credible threat. Mm -hmm. Maybe that person was weaponized. Maybe Mm -hmm. they were making actual incitement statements or giving us the idea that they might carry out an attack. Then that would go under review. Mm -hmm. In the cases that we would unearth a potential bomb plot or something that would lead to real world harm, we don't want to keep that to ourselves. So there is a legal procedure only in the case of real world harm Mm -hmm. and credible threat that we might package that and send a report to law enforcement. But that's only under those extreme circumstances. General sharing of terrorist content is very noisy. And the false positives get really interesting. There's a case in North Africa, for example, where we saw a trend of lots of female profiles coming down for terrorist content shares. And it was weird because their profiles didn't look very standard. It was flagged to us by our operations teams. And when we dug further, we realized that there was a post going around saying, If you want to get rid of your Facebook profile and you delete it yourself, there's a 30-day hold. But if you share terrorist content, it comes down really quickly. And so they weren't sharing it to support terrorism. They were actually seeing it as an easy way to get rid of their Facebook page Mm -hmm. because it was part of a leaving Facebook movement. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to hand those profiles over to law enforcement. That's actually also against privacy law. But then there's challenges within that when you've got something like that going on that others could be missed. Others who weren't involved for, for, that, for that reason, a part of that leave Facebook movement could be missed. When well, the profiles would still come down. Mm. So it's not like we said, no, we'll leave you yeah. up despite sharing terrorist content, yeah. but a profile review would take place. Mm-hmm. So anytime, if it's around terrorism, yeah. terrorism is one of those areas that is actually very low prevalence, high risk. Mm-hmm. So there's many more people sharing baby pictures and dog pictures yeah. compared to terrorist propaganda. Mm-hmm. But anytime a profile comes down, there's a review. So mm-hmm. we would look for these other indicators. Mm-hmm. Some of the machine learning technology helps us surface things like, were they part of pages that were also taken down for terrorist violations? Were they, how was their network? Did they have 50% of their friends were also taken down for terrorist violations? So we would look for other indicators to see what the network looks like. But the process of radicalization, when you look at extremism, that's a lot of gray. Yeah. And it's less about censorship. It's more about questioning, can we be effective in pulling people away from that? Mm -hmm. And that's where we have to partner with a lot of NGOs and civil society. So we really look to upskill and optimize things like counter speech, alternative narratives, counter narratives, and it shouldn't be Facebook making it. We would help NGOs and civil society develop content and Mm -hmm. then help them strategically launch it online Mm -hmm. to push back on different forms of hate speech and extremism. So sitting here in the UK as an academic, um, within universities, we've got the prevent duty. Right. Uh, But there wouldn't be the same on, there isn't the same for social media organizations as well. Now there's, there are different, uh, there's obviously, obviously core differences here, but how would you feel if there was something similar to that for social media organizations like like Facebook? Well, we do actually have what we call the Online Civil Courage Initiative, mm. and that exists in the UK, Germany, and France. Okay. And those were initiatives that we developed with our programs teams specifically to help NGOs and civil society groups and activists scale up, basically upscale, upskill, and optimize their online presence. Mm-hmm. The UK is pretty impressive because it's been talking about prevent yeah. and it, it's been talking about radicalization for a long time. And I think that's because of its historical legacy mm-hmm. uh, with Ireland. Mm-hmm. And 
it's really key as well because the UK understands non-Islamist extremist terrorism. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that you had, heaven forbid, white people as terrorists within your history, where a lot of other countries perhaps have stereotyped terrorism as one thing <laughs> unduly, which stops us from being realistic about things like white supremacy terrorism that's been on the rise. But we have things like the Online Civil Courage Initiative specifically to train practitioners. And I think it's important that we are not trying to replace offline efforts. So when you look at really difficult tasks like disengagement, I don't really like the term de-radicalization, but disengagement programs where somebody has been flagged for extremism or somebody has been caught trying to join a conflict zone to join a terrorist organization like a foreign terrorist fighter, um, the fact that we're not trying to replace those really crucial offline efforts, mm -hmm. but you can engage online in ways that you just can't engage offline yeah. with a stranger. So, mm -hmm. for example, ISD did an amazing program called um, called One to One, mm -hmm. and it was called Critical Conversations later, I think, where they had former extremists and practitioners reach out through Facebook Messenger mm -hmm. to people that were identified as being on the spectrum of extremism mm -hmm. and basically cold call them. Yeah and reach out and say, hey, I see what you're going through. I've been there, let's talk. And actually they were allowed to put the engagement in their own words and ISD did discourse analysis on what worked. Mm -hmm. So was it better to say, you know, if you're reaching out to a, someone on the neo-Nazi spectrum, hey, I see you like mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. A lot of them tend to like mixed martial arts. Yep. It's one of those things. Uh, let's talk about it. Or are you open and saying, I used to be part of this group. Mm -hmm. If you ever wanna chat, I'm here. Mm -hmm. And they did analysis on tone, and receptiveness and what got, uh, what turned into actual conversations to plant the seed of doubt. In the past few months, the, when we're talking about Facebook, violent extremism, terrorism, the event that comes to mind for most people is Christchurch. Yeah. Um, this is a horrific attack, live streamed um, on Facebook uh, yeah. at the time. There has been criticism within New Zealand, um, as well as internationally, to Facebook's reaction to this. Uh, when you look at the uh, pri uh, privacy minister within, uh, within New Zealand, uh, calling out Facebook as, um, for, their, uh, for the way that they acted, um, calling out, the, there's since been uh, calls about there, that there should be delays within live streaming. Um, and si recently, Facebook uh, have come out uh, and said uh, that there are, this is under review. But there's also negative reaction to the delay in a public reaction from, from Facebook in relation to Christchurch. What actually, from a Facebook point of view, what was it like during the Christchurch incident? What was happening within Facebook to try and deal with this, as much as you can say? And what lessons have been learned? And are there any core changes that to be made as a result of this? Well, I appreciate you not shying away from a hard question because I think it's worth asking. I mean, it was horrific. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was horrific globally for everyone, but it's especially horrific when you see tooling that you work on, a platform that you work for, mm -hmm being operationalized in the worst potential way possible with a lot of planning behind it. So I think there's a couple things to tease out quickly around that. One is that Facebook did 
publicly give two different blog posts very openly trying to update our communities on what was happening behind the scenes. So within a day or two after it, we gave a post about what was taking place, what tooling was being used, how much content had been removed, and a day or two after that gave an even further update. So we were trying to communicate as much as possible. It's not always picked up on. Mm -hmm. um, everyone says we should communicate better. It's kind of hard sometimes, mm -hmm. but that's you know much for muchness. Behind the scenes, I can tell you that the video itself, the live stream itself, was only seen by under 200 people. Now, it shouldn't have been seen by anyone. It's a horrific video. I, if you haven't watched it, don't. It's really disturbing, but I, I did. I actually went with the teams. We analyzed it. We were looking at it. Um, it's, a, it's a really hard one. Some things are already in place to try to make sure that live prevents certain things that are known known violations. So there are indicators that are put on it around suicide. Um, machine learning only works really well when a lot of data is fed to it. Even though this is horrific, one good thing is that we don't have a lot of this sort of event live stream that we can train our systems off of. A lot of it also pulls up a bunch of false positives. So when you look at how the video was done, it was strategized to be like a first person shooting video game, which is horrific. We also saw that the virality of it was pre-planned. So when we work with our Intel vendors and people that look on other platforms, there were very open discourses about the launch before it happened on 8chan, which we don't own. Um, so it was actually announced that it was gonna be launched beforehand on a smaller platform. People were told to go and stream it, and then people shared ways of manipulating the video so that they tried to not be picked up by our photo and video hashing technology. So we, New Zealand law enforcement and Facebook were working closely together, so we were working with law enforcement the whole time. Within the first 24 hours of the attack, we took down 1.5 million versions of the video, and 1.2 million of those were caught immediately through our video matching technology. The other portion of it was from people flagging it to us, and every time it was flagged, we would hash it to make sure that we increased our knowledge of it. We also, for the first time, engaged the GIFCT on it. Mm -hmm. GIFCT is not meant to be an infrastructure for crisis management usually, so this is the first time we did it, but our companies came together and said, okay, we'll build a database within our hash sharing consortium, which already has about 14 different tech platforms signed up to it, and has about 130,000 unique hashes of terrorist content within it we built out a specific file that was just for New Zealand. So uh, versions of the manifesto, images and videos relating to the attack itself because the law enforcement made the explicit saying that every share is considered illegal. Yeah. We also had to remove normal blockers that would allow the content. So usually terrorist content that might be shared by Sky News or an official media channel we would not auto-block it, we'd have human review. And we actually had to remove those because a lot of this was also shared by mainstream media. It's not usually something we want to resort to. Um, and about the live delay, this is something under consideration, so I won't say unequivocally where it's gonna land. Delay might or might not have helped in this case. Nobody flagged the live video to us while it was going. So there was no flags on it by law enforcement or by Facebook users during the video itself. But we've also had feedback immediately from some activists that have requested that we don't delay live because when you think of things like 
police brutality around mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter or activists that a police might bombard and take down journalist networks in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Live is very important so that they are documenting in real time and getting their voice out about a situation happening to them. Mm -hmm. um, so all of this is under consideration. We've considered other things like if you have other types of violation strikes on your account, but your profile is still live, maybe it puts you in a feature block where you can't use live. So how can we create friction in other ways? But we're still doing a lot of analysis on New Zealand. It was such an aggressive push for virality, even mentioning PewDiePie and telling people to go on the specific Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. The proliferation was pretty grotesque. And some of that's going to be supporters. Some people were sharing it to condemn it. Some people were mainstream journalists. Some people are gore enthusiasts. We saw a huge range. Um, some of that would be naturally violating, but we took everything down at the behest of law enforcement in New Zealand. I believe as well that it was it was said afterwards that or it was Brian Fishman actually said that there was not enough gore as well within the within the stream to be automatically taken taken down as well. Um, yeah, I think that sounds that sounds really harsh to to say something like that. The her, the attack was horrific. Yeah. So when you look at this video, and please don't, mm. but when you do look at the video, it is no doubt horrific. The what he's referring to is that we do have risk mitigation around mm. things like gore. So that will actually be machine learning looking for things like blood and gore mm. to try to make an an indicator. And usually, what happens is we would automatically mark that as disturbing yeah. and it would immediately be held for human review to ensure that that's not glorification. Again, it's hard for a machine to know the difference between an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or a documentary film or that could even be a document about previous holocausts, whether that's Rwanda or World War II, um, versus what might be going on now. Live is a little different. So it didn't have certain thresholds for it to be automatically surfaced. It doesn't mean that we think it wasn't gory enough. It's mm -hmm. absolutely horrific. But we do have these other indicators that usually try to help us surface things proactively. And had you seen anything like this before, like the live streaming uh, of an attack um, that, that you, that Facebook have learned from and are... And what would the core differences be here versus those previous? So live has been used for bad before, mm. the vast majority of live is very benign to good. Yeah. And so it's a really, as I said, it's not just low prevalence, high risk, it's extremely low prevalence, extremely high risk. Mm -hmm. So it's at the utmost ends of the spectrum. But there's not a lot that was done like this. I can tell you just from analysis of lots of, you know, when you look at Al-Qaeda or Daesh propaganda, which is very centrally coordinated, which tries to get as much virality as possible, this blew those statistics out of the water. This is the most aggressively and pre-planned virality around one incident that I have ever seen in the online space. And it was planned across multiple, multiple platforms. Uh, and there was also people sharing links onto Facebook, but the links lead to a third-party platform, and we don't always know what that leads to. So we had to really aggressively do banking of the images and videos. We actually also had to employ audio detection. So yeah. we saw some horrific instances where somebody had turned the in incident into a cartoon so that it would evade detection. So we used audio matching um, and it was just meant to divert away. We also had to block URLs. So if we knew that it led to a URL of a platform we weren't in communication with, we would just make sure to black hole that URL so that it doesn't appear and it wasn't allowed on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So lots of different efforts behind the scenes were taking place. It's never enough. We have, and we'll, for better or worse, we'll learn a lot from this to see what more can be done. Mm -hmm. But we also don't wanna 
solve for something at the cost of over-censorship or human rights or stopping an outlet that's really needed for certain activists. So we have to take all sides into consideration. Yeah, and it's... Would there be call for, like, when we're looking at GIFCT, when we're looking at Facebook's reaction, is would there be call for external uh, review of what went on, external from outside of Facebook, outside of social media, to see how how this could be uh, prevented uh, in the future as well? And if, if it is going on already... Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends on what you mean by external review. Mm. So we always are also in compliance with GDPR and privacy. So it's not like we will unduly just give data away at the cost of compliance with privacy laws. But I think one of the big questions is, especially around New Zealand that has come out, okay, we just set a new precedent for GIFCT Mm -hmm. that we made a crisis bank around New Zealand for Mm. our 14 companies. And, you know, half of those companies are much smaller. Yeah to work off of and again we'll we put the hash bank together and it's up to other companies how they want to use it we're not policing each other but it's there for them so now the question is new zealand was obviously a crisis that had virality to a level that we should have acted how do we define a crisis attacks happen all the time all over the world terrorist attacks happen frequently when you look at a global scale what constitutes a crisis, a terrorist attack crisis, that would trigger GIFCT to do that again? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's where I think we need a lot of third-party expertise because we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. Other governments, at what point does a foreign government reach out to another government because of an attack? What are the precedents for defining crisis and what should be triggered because of that? And I think we need a lot of um, third-party feedback from experts and also from governments on that. So is there a future, like, for further engagement with academia? And if so, what way can uh, academia get involved in this, in, the, in conjunction with Facebook, or in, in what, what way can Facebook facilitate that academic research? Yeah, it's, we really need action-oriented research. Mm-hmm. So when GIFCT was founded, one thing we put out was a proposal for different academic institutions to help us create a network. Mm-hmm. So we didn't decide who those institutions were, proposals were put forward, and that was one by RUSI. So yeah. the Royal United Services Institute here in London runs uh, eight different institutes that are based, again, on four continents, um, seven countries, and they are doing calls for proposals, and those institutes have started producing papers that help us explore big questions that tech companies are asking. So, for example, what are the morals and ethics of takedown? Mm-hmm. Where is machine learning effective and where do you still need human expertise? Where can we learn from the banking sector? (laughs) What does white supremacy propaganda look like? And so these are some of the things that can really help us. And so that global academic network, and that includes ICCT and Swansea University. It also includes ORF in India and the IDC in Israel, among others. And so it allows us to try to get some different perspectives and also be wary of those perspectives, but have it be action-oriented and feed it back into us. So we'd like to, I know we have upcoming conferences mm-hmm. that'll be open to other academics and tech companies to join, and those will be in London and in, I think, Washington, D.C. in May. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to, I can send you more information on that. That'd those. be great. And could this include uh, academic access to data uh, in relation to, to be able to analyze those data? And uh, I know like, when you talk about data and 
Facebook data can be in so many things, but um, and it can come in so many forms. But is there that possibility? Yeah, I think the devil will always be in the detail when we say this word data, mm. such a small and polite word that could mean a million different things when you're a tech company. So really honestly, and, and it pangs me coming from an academic background, post Cambridge Analytica, there's a lot of wariness to share data from tech companies. And that's because that was not a data breach. That was actually a violation of an academic contract where data was meant to be mined for research purposes and was used for other purposes. So I have been trying to wedge my foot in the door. It takes lots of conversations with many lawyers. I've never had to deal with so many lawyers in my life. It's so much easier working for an NGO or an academic institute. Um, but what we're trying to do is see you know, what, what does data actually mean to researchers? So when you have a research question and you say, I want Facebook data, and I empathize entirely because I know Twitter has a easier API access, so everyone has Twitter data, but nobody has Facebook data because it's harder with our APIs and restrictions. But we need to look at the research question and then work backwards to exactly what do you mean when you say data? So when you say, I wanna look at extremism in France, well, over what period? How are you defining extremism? Are you saying you want to do discourse analysis on page posts? Or are you looking at nodal analysis for how connected individuals are? Or are you looking at how much they abused the platform before the profiles were taken down? So you have to really be specific about what you're trying to analyze and define your data around that. And then it has to be a back and forth conversation about what is legally possible given privacy regulation, um, because then we have to go through the process of destratifying it, anonymizing it, making sure it's in compliance with other laws. But I think we're starting to try to see what do data sets look like um, to try to get better communication with researchers. So I know that we've been engaging with academics uh, in DC as well as in Paris to try to get different perspectives specific to extremism and terrorism on what do they mean by data, what would we need to declassify, what would we need to stratify to help with those research questions. One of the, when we're talking about online data at the moment, uh, one of the great resources that a lot of the academics listening to this uh, podcast will be aware of is geology.net. Um, and we've seen in recent days, really, that, that it's now password protected, that uh, you can log on through, um, through .ac.uk.edu accounts, um, whereas it wasn't before. Um, how do you view this, the, a source like that, and what role did Facebook, uh, did, did WebCT, did uh, GIFCT? I know, sorry, I told you, uh, everyone needs another acronym. Yeah, did GIFCT play in relation to this? So we were really happy to be able to work with Aaron Zellin, first of all, because he's a phenom. He's mm. really dedicated to this, and he's dedicated a lot of his life to documenting terrorist content and propaganda plus giving his own analysis to it and in many cases translating it. I mean, that is a labor of love and that is also a, a valuable resource to the academic community. We also saw a lot of government pressure. You know, he yeah. was geo-blocked from certain countries. There was increasing UK government pressure. Um, I don't think that's his main prerogative to concern himself with that. He's really dedicated to his field, which he should be. But I think we recognize that GIFCT as an infrastructure might be able to help when you have an academic site like that, the last thing an academic has is an extra thousands of dollars to put towards securitizing a website. Mm -hmm. And there's so much data and content on 
jihadology, that moving that over to a securitized site in and of itself is a labor of love and one that can't be done for free. I think it's important that big tech companies weren't, like Facebook wasn't saying, do this, jihadology. Facebook said, hey, through GIFCT and with our other comrades in arms from the tech community, we see this as a valuable resource. We're trying to create a standard for preventing exploitation of this type of resource. And we funded a partnership between jihadology and Tech Against Terrorism. Mm -hmm. So that's the UNCTED-backed initiative. Um, and Tech Against Terrorism is a neutral NGO. They yeah. work a lot with us. They've also worked with governments. They work a lot with academics. Um, and they worked with Aaron to make sure that the site was to his likings. I think probably in the next week or two, they're going to tease out all the little bugs. And yeah. if there's any issues with .edu or .gov, or what if you're not a .edu or .gov but still should have access, what that looks like. But I think that shows that we shouldn't just be resulting to, it's bad, take it down. Mm -hmm but actually seeing that there's areas where we can put friction between bad actors and good actors and allow for that gateway for knowledge to exist. So I'm, I'm happy to see this progression, and I know there's still a little more work to be done, but I think if we can get away from... Some stuff obviously needs to be taken down, mm -hmm. but when there's resources, it's not censorship that's going to fix it. We can actually leave the resource, but just prevent exploitation of it. With regards to... With regards to lessons learned uh, throughout the evolution of Facebook being involved in looking at CVE, CT, what, were the, what have been the core lessons that have been learned um, uh, in the past few years? Oh, my God. So, you know, I, when I told Brian Fishman that, okay, I will take on this role and yeah. sell my soul to Facebook and <laughs> feel like I'm not an objective researcher, I, he, he told me flat out, you will never be bored. This is like going back to university. You are learning something every day. It is, in that respect, from a research perspective, it is fascinating because I'm getting to learn all the engineers and what's technically possible, but also learn the reasons why something might not be technically possible. And it, it reinstates the fact that there's no silver bullet. Mm -hmm. You know, when we look at the New Zealand attack and we say, but you should have done X, and you think, okay, what are the cost benefits of X? What could have been done differently? I think it's been great to see the scale and nuance built into the tooling. So for example, with machine learning, making sure that tooling knows when to triage it to human teams so that it's not black and white, it's not what's machine, what's human. I think it's been really great to see our teams build out in other regions. Mm -hmm. So to work with our African public policy team or our Middle East and North Africa public policy team and get their perspectives on our definitions and get their perspectives of what terrorism and violent extremism looks like in their region, which is outside of the Western norms, is really crucial and important. Um, and I think only by, I know you're a tech company, so you want to look at the sexy technology, but the human expertise behind the field is, is increasing and is what keeps you passionate because you realize there's people that they haven't just come on here flippantly because we get free food. The free food helps, <laughs> but they've given up passionate careers because they think that they can make a difference on this big global platform. And we mentioned about trust in the Middle East earlier on, but you brought up, you mentioned about Cambridge Analytica. We've talked about what happened and what was being said about Facebook in the aftermath of Christchurch. Why can Facebook be trusted off, off the back of events like this? And how can Facebook be trusted off the back of events like this to be carrying out roles like we've been talking about uh, today? Yeah, I mean, 
as per anything, trust is really hard to build and really easy to lose. Mm -hmm. uh, that's out of every aspect of life. Facebook's not an exception to that. But when you're so massive, um, there's there are some things that I think are undue criticisms. And sure, I'm going to have my biases now because I work for Facebook and see what goes on behind the scenes. There are some things that are very fair criticisms. Um, you learn, to, somebody once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. I think as long as we are evolving and learning and making sure that crisis doesn't happen a second time mm -hmm. and what that looks like, then you're in the right space to make change. I don't think there's ever going to be a place when you're trying to say you have a global policy, mm -hmm. uh, you're never going to get it right. No one government or organization is going to say, you know what, you've done enough, you've got it right, you're in a better place. Um, Cambridge Analytica happened in 2014. Mm -hmm. It's a long time ago. Uh, and policies changed immediately afterwards. And by the time it actually became much more public knowledge more recently, the policy landscape had totally already changed online. It's not to say there wasn't more to be done even after that. But when you start getting into these newer topics, not new topics in the world, but newer topics in the online space, like define election interference. Yeah when it's not going to be traditional campaigns that you're looking at. It's gonna be things like fake accounts or mm -hmm. misinformation. Yeah. Um, define misinformation. Mm -hmm. If I say you're wearing a yellow shirt, that is a lie. That's not what we're really talking about. We're talking about misinformation that might lead to real world harm yet again. So when I was in Pakistan, uh, they were talking about how we'd worked with a bunch of media organizations and NGOs to identify 33 pieces of misinformation that were potentially leading to real world harms and to severely downrank and work with NGOs to counter that information. And they actually saw a decrease in the propagation of those 33 topics by about 80%. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not relying on censorship. It's about being innovative and creative. Mm -hmm. So, and I think we do need to see better legislation. Mm -hmm. I know that's a newer topic and it's not very trendy for tech companies to say, but we should not be defining this space by ourselves. Mm -hmm. We should not as tech companies say, we know best. We should say, tell me what, you mean when you say electoral interference, tell me what you mean when you say terrorists are exploiting the internet and how is that evolving? And that's where academics are so key too because they are seeing the trends cross platform. I'm not really supposed to be sitting on a hundred platforms. I'm supposed to be looking at my own platforms mm -hmm. that I'm dealing with in this role. So I think evolve or die, you have to evolve. You have to learn from your errors and trust I think will take quite a long time to build back up. Mm -hmm. It really depends what region you're looking at yeah. again. So some regions are very trusting of Facebook, other regions are not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it depends on, hey, they might have an authoritarian dictatorship and Facebook's one of the only outlets where they can get a message across. Mm -hmm. Or the refugee crisis where we saw that it was the only communication for certain people to let families know they were okay or to try to get help in a new country that were, they were arrived in. So we shouldn't ignore the benefits. <laughs> But we do need better guidelines and it needs to be in coordination with other sectors. Erin, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. I've really enjoyed our discussion and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you very much. Oh, thank uh, you for having me. As always, if you want to find out more about uh, Talking Terror, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast or follow me at Morrison underscore JF. If you want that, uh, that 35% off all books from bloomsbury.com. Use the, the code TALKINGIBT19 and be sure to apply or to send someone to apply for our new MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies here at Royal Holloway University of London. Until next week, goodbye.